I'm editing. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
it's very stressful and I'm really exhausted by how weird you can't even explain the things that come up in poverty that you can't like fix with money which a lot of people could fix with money and it's hard to explain these things to people on a day-to-day basis because it's just like so weird but you're like now my headphones broke and now I can't have that meeting in the public space that I need to have it right, in you know it's right. like these weird things that you're like all these weird inconveniences that I don't have I can't afford to have but like are expected of me mm-hmm. so I'm just trying to like overall create structure and I've been it's been really exhausting but also with our project like that we have doing the nine to five is just for me to like keep my life afloat I am just so excited about doing anything creative. Like, all I want to do is be creative with my friends. Mm-hmm. I know. I uh, I told you I went to Mohai yesterday, and it was, like, about early Seattle and stuff, and they were talking about, like, the weaving. There were some woven pieces, and I was, like, to Jane, I was, like, if we lived thousands of years ago, we could just hang out all day together and weave. And I don't mean to, like – it's a joke, you know? I don't mean to say that, like, <laughs> life was per- easy and perfect for the for those people. Okay, like – not, I'm just saying. It sounds fun to weave with my Not friends. in Northern Europe. Northern Europe, like, did have, like, you know, the dark times where everybody was starving and, like, the plague and stuff was happening all the time. Um, but for most of the world, like, people were chilling, having a pretty good time. I think, like, yeah, doing that kind of work, you would do it with your community versus with people who are at various pay structures and have various levels of control over you. Yeah. Anyways, what's trending with you, Hope? Trending with me are statistics. I famously am obsessed with our podcast statistics. For a while, I was filling in a map of the U.S. Every time we got a listener from that state, I stopped because fucking Idaho is holding out. I told you. And goddamn Delaware. And just like... Well, Del- no one lives in no Delaware. No one lives in Delaware. Oh, people it- only file taxes in Delaware. Yeah, exactly. Um, I might have to go on a trip there just so that I can... <laughs> I mean, we can easily go to Idaho, but I'm telling you that it's not the crew that we want to hang out with. Fair enough. But there's been another additional layer of statistics in that I got this thing called a whoop. Um, My brother's a CrossFit person. My family in general is athletic, and they all had whoops except for me and my sisters. We None of us had a whoop. I decided to get one. My younger sister decided to get one. And now we're in a family group where, like, everyone can see how much sleep we got the previous night, what our recovery score is, like – how well we recovered from the last day's quote unquote strain, or in my case, alcohol. It like knows when you've drank. Yeah, it's just basically a, a tool to narc out you out from to your parents. Basically, yes. And I've been drinking less. Um, I'm only having like a few drinks a week, like three, which to some people is still drinking, but to me is like I'm basically abstinent. Um, it's been a thing. Like, I feel like it's a, it's a true shift in my perspective where I'm like really trying to be kinder to my body and not feel hungover ever. Anyway, I woke up Saturday. I had had two drinks the night before and I'd had a bad night of sleep because my dog and whatever drinking just like makes your sleep bad. And both of my parents texted me the next day to ask if I was sick because my recovery score was red. It was like, I was joking to Brian. I was like, don't you want one of these? You could have my parents knowing how your body's functioning every day. Yeah. We have two different whoop groups with. Uh, Yeah. Just to be clear, Hope's parents are divorced. Yeah. Two different whoop groups. It has been helpful. It's kind of cool when you work out, you can like see your heart rate and it has made me work harder. I, I, crack when I'm at dance to see like how hard I'm hustling on the dance floor mm-hmm. so you know Rai told me shout out to Rai Rai's one of my really good friends that does not listen to the podcast I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> but they constantly send me stuff to talk about on the podcast because they are interested in you know 
gender specifics. People but. who have to or get to listen to us talk all the time, depending on how you look at it, I feel like I would not expect to l- yeah. listen to the podcast. The, they already hear me rant on a day-to-day, so. Yeah. yeah, anyways, they had an experience where they had to, like, they bought, like, a not, like, a Fitbit, but something that was just, like, if they worked for, like, a grocery store or something, and it was, like, if you reach this amount of, like, steps in a day that you get, like, cheaper insurance, something dystopic you know so like they told me they would like go to a concert and just like step 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 just like march in place just to (laughs) just to get insurance that was affordable dude damn i mean rye (laughs) as you told me is is very frugal like i mean they use they use mint mobile to the point where i'm like i i guess as a capricorn i'm just like i like to indulge and i i think that everybody should indulge but they, uh, yeah, they're so frugal to a point where I have to convince them to buy the thing that they need. Kind of like you. Yeah. I feel like everybody around me is frugal and I lose my, I'm like, where, why am I hanging out with all these frugal asses? Yeah, well. <laughs> Where's my bougie girls that indulge that are like. You and Matt. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Capricorns. We like, we like the finer things in life. But yeah, this isn't about me. I'm like a pioneer woman. I mean, I'm becoming less so. I bought the couch and now I want a yeah. rug. I'm going to buy a new rug next month. Yeah, so there's... That uh, rugs are not cheap, at least for the ones that you want. Right, yeah. But it really is important to tie the color scheme of the room together. It really uh, is. Once I get, I'm getting the rug next month and then I'm going to put the candle holders you made me up because I feel like it's just going to like, uh, it's going to be so good. Hell yeah. Yeah, so anyway, stats. Stats are <laughs> trending with me. Oh, you, you should tell you why you got it though because you didn't really explain You got it because you wanted to just stay connected to your friends and to family. To my brothers, yeah, like... I talk to my sisters a lot, but my brothers live in Nashville and they like sports. We all really enjoy being together when we are together, but it's like, you know, we don't keep in touch a ton. So it's, Yeah, y'all are in distance. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. So it has worked for that. And, you know, like every decision that a woman makes, at the back of her mind, she thinks, will this make me skinny? You can take that out. But it's like, <laughs> I, I would be lying if I said that like. Yeah, that's your own thing. Yeah, it's not what anyone should be thinking, and thinness is not something we should aspire to. But you know, we all deal with it. <laughs> okay, so we left off last time as Edward Enenfull was told that at 18 years old he was going to be running ID Magazine. He had also just told his dad that he didn't want to continue going to college, and he got thrown out of his house. So this is like a really big moment for him. Well, not running ID. He was going to become fashion director, which is like running the fashion department of okay. ID. Okay. But I don't know because like aren't aren't they a fashion magazine? It's a powerful position. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely focused on fashion for sure. ID, like I had said in the past, stands for like instant design. Terry Jones is the creator of it. And he essentially wanted to like capture streetwear in a way that was meaningful. It was first made as an actual zine that wasn't dispersed at all really um and it was like hand stapled and like yeah so that's the that's kind of where it came from not to say that he was like a grassroots kind of guy he did come from vogue so he was like somewhat established in the fashion industry already to a certain degree it wasn't like him coming up from the community just being like i'm gonna make these zines it was like he was coming from a place where he already had got this access to the fashion world and but wanted to shift perspectives. I think that's important to note. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, like I wonder what resources were like for him. Like I wonder if leaving Vogue, like his connections, like whether they were willing to help him, whether he had to raise money, like what his yeah. situation was. 
He created the design firm, I'm pretty sure. From what I understood, he got to write a book about the punk thing, which is what he wanted to do in Vogue, in British Vogue, but they were like, no. But then he's like, okay, well, I'm going to write a book about it. So he got to write a book. But he also, like, freelanced a lot, too, as does, as we see, Edward in full. I think that's probably the key of being a successful stylist is obviously freelancing. So you're not beholden to one magazine or whatever. Right, right. Because it's like the magazine is supposed to have a certain creative direction, and it's like... You can't really stray from that. Yeah, exactly. And he had various connects already. So he he created a firm. I don't know what that design firm looked like, but he was like creating typefaces and stuff too. So, um, and that's why he says that ID was the first emoticon because he like hand painted it and it was like influenced from a certain type of fonts that they used. Um, and it was three years before he got his own computer, so. Wow. Anyways, that's a little bit about ID and just giving you. Terry Jones, our Luddite king. He, yeah. <laughs> no, maybe computers just weren't yeah. there yet. He, I think he got a computer like in ni- the early, early 90s. So, and it was like Apple Elod or something like that is what it was called. Elod? It was Greek. Is that Greek? I don't know. It was one of those like store, those big books that is the I-L. Oh, the Iliad? Yeah, I think it was the Apple Iliad. Wow. And I'm like, this has, they ain't run a fucking book. Anyways, I was just like, oh, look at Apple. So you like the beginning. I don't know. Yeah, of course. It's like you read this book as a young man and it like influenced your idea of the hero's journey. And yeah. like now you're going to reference it in your product years yeah. later. Okay, so after a lifetime of my father's tyranny, I was done. His mom tells him your father didn't mean it. He didn't want you to move out, but Edward's like pretty over it, pretty over it. And he's also in shock. It was the second time in seven years that I had been ejected from the only home I knew. And this time it was worse because I was being separated from my family. Kind of like what you were saying last episode of like how his support network was so integral to him getting where he is today. Mm -hmm. Like imagine that would just, yeah, being separated from your siblings who are basically like your, it's just crazy also to me that like him and his siblings lived in Ghana and went through this experience together of emigrating to to the UK, but they didn't have to all end up so similar as they did. Like him and his brothers all being kind of like interested in the, in going fashion, out and yeah. fashion and stuff. It's, yeah. it's cool how they all evolved together. Yeah. Well, I think it's because they were so probably close in age. I don't know, but yeah, they really didn't even, they had no respect for their dad, which really I think helped, you know, like they're yeah. all like, fuck dad. They yeah. There wanna, wasn't like, like some goody goody that was like a narc. Yeah. That was trying to impress their dad, you know, or whatever yeah. that, thank God that there should be less of that because honestly, appeasing your parents is just another way of surviving your trauma. And, um, I say it's the least interesting, the least fun way of surviving your trauma, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyways, I would say that he's going through a lot, but also like he got this job as fashion director which I don't know why anyone would ever give an 18-year-old. I don't care if he was a stylist. So strange. It's very Harajuku. What do you mean? Like oh. that they were having really young people in editorial positions. Yeah, I don't think – I want to know more about, like, ID's policy because I was like, is this, like, a thing that they, they, like, wanted to do? Right, right. If part of their vision was, like, the youth running the show. Right. Was that, like, an intentional part of it? It's just, like, because they do – because, like – having young people will allow you to access like what's up and coming like it is a smart move but it's also like I don't know if that was their intention or not like um at least for editorial roles or like director roles like that seems irresponsible and exploitative to me Mm -hmm. because he does talk about the the massive nature of 
taking on a fashion director and he's not well informed about what's going on he's learning on the job which I think is great I think that's a way how to learn but people have to have patience for that but two like I think they took advantage of his nature of wanting to please because at 18 19 20 right you're willing to do so much right 18 it's like oh it's almost like they they intentionally caught him at the time where he he could have kept on in school and they were like no you should make this your life which in a way like could come off as like supportive and they were like helping him like really commit right but yeah i mean i can totally see the exploitative do you want this blanket but yeah i i'm just kind of confused by the decision making of this also younger people are are cheaper because they don't know their worth they don't know the research that they need to like i I, i'm still overwhelmed about like doing the research of like what how much i should get paid and like what what is living wage versus how much i actually am getting it paid yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Just be like, hey, I'm on the pod. Hello. J- Jackie and I are recording right now. Oh, hey, Jackie. Hi, cutie patootie. I'm excited to hear how your protest went, but. Oh, I just sent, submitted my article like two hours ago. I Ooh, really don't think. Nice. Will you call me later because I need to do a curtain consult before I go get your curtain order tomorrow. Yeah. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Just some sister stuff. <laughs> She's doing an article on Airbnb in Mexico for Al Jazeera. It's like about like oh badass how Airbnb is kind of like fucking with the housing industry. So she went to a protest this weekend to find people to like interview, and she just submitted her article. So check it out. Oh my god, I love that. Congrats, Vanessa Frigi. Look her up. Yeah, she's amazing. Uh, where were we? Yeah, so he is saying the job is massive. He'd had to wrangle musicians, models, aristocrats. And what we called quote unquote real people, meaning interesting civilians, to fill the magazine pages. That just cracks me up. Like they're like real people, you know. Right. You, people of the streets. Right. Yeah. He also talks about how like the job was about politics as much as it was about writing, assisting, or simply styling. I mean, of course, being in a position of power means wielding it and like sometimes that is uncomfortable. Like he says Terry would give photographers creative freedom, but he could also be tough on them and when he was out of town as he often was i'd have to carry out his mandates with stalwart whose long and illustrious careers preceded my time basically like he's an 18 year old and he has to call people up and be like actually like this shoot that you took days to do we're actually going to cut it completely or like we need you to redo this and he said but then as now my advice is this whether the news you have to impart is good bad or simply awkward tell it fast tell it kindly and move on it's not personal i thought that was pretty good advice yeah, I I agree. But he also said some days he couldn't believe he got away with it too because, like, I would be so mad if an 18-year-old, like, did give me directions. Yeah, right. Go fuck off. Yeah, it would be hard to take. Because ID bred such loyalty and offered so much creative freedom, people didn't leave, even when they broke out to more lucrative mainstream p- pastures. And I'm like, is that true? Seems like people were leaving because they got a fashion director position for an 18-year-old. Yeah, maybe – Maybe less than normal, but yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but I guess not. I guess that people were staying, and that's cool. Yeah, he he mentions Jurgen Teller, who we talked about in our very first podcast episode, and he talks about how like Jurgen's surreal, surprising, and almost deer in the headlights style was honed at ID, where cheekiness and confrontation were part of our identity. Um, he talks about his brother Luther coming along for like some of the work he did. I just love, I just love their dynamic. I'm like, okay. I know this is me being a dumb millennial, but if he's not allowed to talk to his family, how does he get a hold of Luther? They don't have cell phones back in the day. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah. Like, does, does Luther come outside? Does like, he, does he, like, do they find him at ID? Like, yeah. I'm just kind of curious how they, like, how are they coordinating? I mean, how did anyone coordinate anything back then? People would just be like, meet me at this place at this time. And that's the thing, like, you couldn't back out. Yeah, and where was he living at this at this time? That's a good question. These are a lot of times. Oh, yeah, he lives with his friend Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, because yeah. his dad was gone for a few months, and then his dad came back, and did they just stay there? I think he was couch hopping for a while, it seems like. But, yeah, they, he, I do wonder a lot of these times, because he starts to have money at some point or another, as you'll see. But, like, was ID paying him enough? Probably not. To, I mean, they definitely didn't have a lot of money, but, like, that's the thing about an 18-year-old being a fashion director. You can pay them nothing. They could, they'll just not know. So that's – I'm like, he, he – you shouldn't have a job as a fashion director and be couch hopping. That's all I'm saying. Definitely. Like, yeah. Anyways. He talks about, like, starting to go out and learning how to, like, make small talk. He, he becomes less shy, kind of, like, starts to get more confident. He also talks about the location of the headquarters, which was on Curtin Road in Shoreditch. Hmm. I don't know if that means anything to anybody, but I kind of wanted to place – where he was mm-hmm. um and he said that the neighborhood was m- almost unrecognizable from the moneyed approximation of cool it would later become mm-hmm. it got gentrified essentially because back then it was like a deserted cobble streets and like had like walkable pub like nearby pubs and like just random creeps all over the alley and he said it was kind of dodgy a, a lot of the times and i guess now i don't know it's bougie i want to assume the thing about gentrification that's really upsetting is the aesthetic that goes with gentrification. The gentrification aesthetic, and I wondered if this is what it looks like now, is like white walls, wood paneling, those Thomas Edison lights. Like sometimes they they even paint brick white. Like, I'm sure it's a different aesthetic at this time, though. I think that I think you're thinking of literally 2010s. I mean, I even like even now though. Yeah, it is surprising when you still see it now. It's yeah, that's what I'm, weird, I'm like. It's a weird like. It's like, haven't we gone past this yet? Yeah. Because it's like, it's Pinterest and it's like not using any really original style. It's chuggy, maybe. Chuggy is the great word. And we're going to bring that back. Um, yes. But also like, I'm just kind of curious for those that live in Shoe Ditch. Can you tell me, can anybody from London, can they tell us like, what does it look like now? What's the aesthetic now? So it's very moneyed versus back then it was like, obviously gross so what have they done to it i'm just curious what have they done to the place we are talking about going on a trip to england if anyone wants to host us that'd be cool okay the next thing i have highlighted is the gone must go bags are we there yet i actually do have the same thing highlighted yeah hope will you talk about that because hope made a tiktok that was going viral and then took it down i did yeah i i made a tiktok about the gone must go bags and then i redid it because so it was going viral. I had posted it and by that night I woke up in the middle of the night and like a little psycho demon, I checked my phone at three in the morning because like what else are you going to do when you wake up? And it was at like 30,000 and that was like a few hours after. As a as a partnership in this, uh, Hope does a really good job doing the TikToks and sometimes they go really, really well with her uh, writing style. And so this one looked like it was going to potentially be the one. Probably the biggest one, yeah. But a lot of people were commenting, a lot of people from Nigeria and Ghana pointing out things that I'd missed or just straight up gotten wrong. So I'm going to do like a brief recap here. But so the Ghana Must Go bag was named for these plastic big like tote bags that were really common. And it seems like they're common all over the world. These specific ones were like plaid. Um, red and blue. And in 1983, the Nigerian government said that all people without papers 
needed to leave Nigeria, it was largely Ghanaian or Ghanaian people who were there at the time and, and who left. And they all left in droves carrying these big plastic bags and they got the name Ghana Must Go Bags. And they're still called that to this day. In Nigeria and Ghana. And I think maybe in other places, yeah. But then a, a lot of places all over the world have all these different names for them. I, yeah, which I thought was really cool. It's really cool. People are commenting on it being like, in Hong Kong, we call them this. And like, yeah. blah, 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 we call them this. And so people pointed out also that Demna doing them as part of the Balenciaga Resort 2017 collection could have actually been a reference to him fleeing during the Russo-Georgian War rather than a reference to Ghana, which makes it less appropriative. But at the same time, the collection he made people say like was referencing North Africa. So that makes me think maybe it was referencing the Ghana go back. I don't know, but. I mean, then it was 100%. Like if it's referencing West Africa. But I also didn't find that much written about it. And it's like one person from Vogue wrote that it was from North Africa. And I think a lot of people just reference that in their articles. Uh, so I don't know like how credible it is. Maybe if I could get like the actual show notes, it would be yeah, way more telling. We should, but like I just assume Balenciana I don't know. It's just like doing the worst <laughs> and not saying something about his own culture. Like just I don't like them and I think they're always trying to exploit something. So I don't trust it. That's why I'm just like I don't think it's about him having this experience like because that's just not what his Balenciana has been like at least. I don't know if he's even still part of it now in 2022 but the last runway show was so offensive and grotesque and just obviously – not about the clothes, and it was just about content and pulling which, content. Which show are you talking about? The one where they used bogs material. They, like, literally extorted, like, bog material from a bog. Oh, right, right, right. Just to create a dystopia by using this, like, not – there's not a lot of these resources, but, yeah. but using this resource that's, like, depleting – and also, essentially, there were trash bags. Their whole thing was, like, trash like trash look and, like, very dark. And they were, like, walking a certain way. And it was, like... Is that where they're, like... Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. I've seen, yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And it's obviously a, a marketing ploy. And that is what Balenciana is known for, like, with the whole Kanye and Kim thing and Julia Fox stuff. Like, they're fo- clearly just focused on providing content um, to make them digestible and stay with up with, like the times but and but it's not about like the clothes itself i think they just don't care as long as it makes the moment at that moment they don't care about fucking anything as long as it's like uh something that's gonna provide them views and to their website or whatever yeah yeah that's fair that's a fair point and so that was one of the things people pointed out but people also pointed out like that the the context was important like i had kind of talked about how nigeria struck oil in 1958 and of course like oil companies come in to extract it the 1970s happens, there's a global oil shortage, so this makes Nigeria really rich. Obviously, it made some people richer than others, um, but people came from like rural areas to the cities to access jobs. People also came from neighboring countries, including Ghana. People pointed out that 20 years earlier, the Nigerian government had kicked out people from Ghana, so like Nigeria kicking out Ghana could have been like a retaliation move. I also talked about Kwame Nkrumah, who was the president at the time. He had been prime minister of Ghana and then they became independent from Britain and then he was elected as the first president of Ghana. He had a vision of a pan-Africanist nation, like a united Africa. He was communicating with Martin Luther King at the time, talking about how he believed that African people should be free from colonizers and American black people should should have human rights, civil rights. And so like what I'd read on Wikipedia and what I'd read other places, but just on the internet, it kind of made it seem like he had an authoritarian government, unfortunately, and like 
had a sketchy election, declared Africa a one-party state, declared himself president forever, and that that's why he was taken down. It seems like some of that is true. I'm not sure what of it is true, but it seems like maybe he did, like, it seems like there, like, is a portion of truth to that, but it also sounds like the CIA was involved, like, there's some declassified papers that show that they were involved in lowering the price of cocoa, which also destabilized Ghana, and that they were had a hand in removing Kwame Nkrumah from power and like it's not a jump to think that like the U.S. government has a reason to not want a united Africa like yeah they they didn't really want any socialism to work or or communism quote-unquote to work right and so like you can see how yeah like African governments could have also had an issue with because he was socialist like essentially and like you know like strengthen the school system and like created industrial energy projects and whatever but basically yeah it's like a ton of context it's like obviously something that you can't understand quickly so I like didn't want to say that Kwame Nkrumah was authoritarian I didn't want people to be like if that wasn't correct and so I took down the video and it was like so sad because we could have gotten so many views. Yeah, we were on our way up. Yeah. But I felt like I did the right thing, not to like pat myself on the back. But I feel like even though I don't think I can really get the story, I can't do it justice. I feel like I was so interested to learn more about him that like if someone else could learn about him and want to learn more, like it seems like his vision is something that we should be, we should know about him. Yeah. So we anyway. should. Also, like, I don't know what Edward Innenfull knows. And I'm kind of curious because the way he explained him was just like a couple sentences. Very brief description. But like you doing the research really gives context to the instability and why, why the instability happens and like what time period for him at Edward. Because Edward was living through this time. Yeah. Yeah. Like he talked about the coups that were happening. Like it's it wasn't the only coup that had happened. Like it seemed yeah. like government was switching over and. Yeah. But I mean, and he seemed like he was like pro this leadership but yeah it is kind of just interesting i don't know why there isn't more i mean i'm sure there is but like more anger towards the u.s i mean there was a lot of anger towards margaret thatcher who was also a racist problematic figurehead but in england but i'm just kind of curious on his opinion of the politics of the u.s um right intervening with like any of west africa stuff yeah would be super interesting to know Um, to hear and understand but also like I don't think he's ever going to talk about the U.S. in a way that's like... He talks about Trump later on in the book. That's a safe way to talk about how shitty America is. Yeah. Okay. The next thing I have was where he talks about like how he was like pretty much just kissing boys. Yeah. uh, Wishing for a prince charming. He says when you grow up gay in a world primed to detest you, you often have to grow up twice. Once when you leave the home, where more often than not, it was your being gay that made you leave. And a second time, when you find the gay community and discover a whole new set of rules and codes to switch in and out of. And this was during the AIDS crisis. And he's like, thanks God about his purity during this time period because it was very scary being gay um, and just living during this time period, obviously, for good reason. Like, it's sad that that was just a normal pro- like time that people were just like seeing their friends die all the time and he doesn't really go into that and I think that's kind of interesting and again uh, Andre Leon Talley also does the same thing because he's like thank god which is weird to think that him and Edwin were both gay during the AIDS epidemic you know what I mean like and how their experiences kind of I mean he was much younger during the AIDS epidemic like 10 years younger but they were still like closer in age thing and reflecting yeah. on it as like their chastness saving them though like 
you know, Edward goes on to have a relationship and Andre never really does. But like, also, there's this really funny part. I just want to say something about the AIDS epidemic, um, about how it killed so many good artists. Mm. And that gave way to a lot of mediocre artists to obtain some kind of fame um, because of it. Like the AIDS epidemic really caused a decrease in like, it makes me really sad that there was so much potential in the world and we lost so many beautiful designers and artists in the process of that. But anyways, and one of the references that I saw on TikTok Mm -hmm. was like the AIDS epidemic really lost um, a lot of these amazing artists. And so like, again, mediocre people could have a rise to fame and including Andre Lloyd Webber. Cats. <laughs> Phantom about the opera. Okay. All those like musicals came out literally because like gay people died and then he got the opportunity to make all these shitty, shitty, shitty musicals. And yeah. I just think that's funny. Anyways. He also talks about how like he was pigeonholed, like how the way black men were referred to, people called them dinge queens. Like there was a lot of like fetishization of him. Yeah. He- the gay culture, he says, in the 90s of Britain was, like, just flat-out racist. So he's dealing with that. And it still is. Very much so. Like, to, the white gay men culture is still very toxic and breeds off the patriarchy and they need to be better. And just because you're gay doesn't make you exclude you from all the rest. Like, you're still benefiting from a lot of these privileges. And, yeah, I just, like, feel like gay, white gay men are even almost, like, just as powerful if not more, because they accepted their gayness. And, like, they're just hetero guys that like men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So they're still problematic in all the like, ways. There can be a sexism to it also where it's like, great, we don't even, like, need women to have exactly. sex with now. Is that bad to say? No, no, I don't think so because it's true. Like, there have been – I've had some really bad experiences with, in white, gay – I was I was part of a gay kickball league, and it was majority white gays. And I said, this isn't great. We're in a, like – area that's like very black and it feels weird that there's only white people on this team and I said it and I got yelled at I got fucking yelled at and I know yeah I know a lot of white gay men especially in the south y'all need to be fucking better yeah anyways just because you're gay doesn't make you woke it's all I'm saying I think there's like and he's working really hard he talks about like the work ethic coming from an African family your work is so connected to self-worth he still has that belief system and I think he wants he like instills it in others too like he I think he wants to see people working hard mm-hmm. around him yeah but I am not okay with that he needs to get stop doing that it does come up as a problem for him and his other romantic relationships and his family relationships yeah and he's still feeling very rejected by his family and he's like thrilled to finally figure out his like spot in the world but yeah he's you know, finding queer friends. And they're all kind of talking about the struggle of being misunderstood by their family members and the judgment that happens. This is a lot. Yeah, dude. So much. (laughs) Just imagine, like, being displaced and then getting this job that's a big boy job at 18 and then also, like, dealing with your, like, queerness. It honestly sounds so overwhelming. Yeah. I don't know. Being 18, though, you're delusional. You are truly delusional. You don't know what's going on. You're you're okay with everything, but you're also insecure about all it all. I don't know. Yeah. He talks about this place called Crunch. Um, his friend Michael 
by the time Edward gets this job, Ed, Michael had also been like climbing the ladder. He didn't have a beauty school training, but he just starts working in salons. He's really talented. He starts shooting a lot with Mark Lebon, who worked out of the studio crash pad called Crunch. It was like a two-story converted garage on Wakeman Road. And Edward has like seen Mark around Ladbrook Grove as a kid. And he was kind of a Ladbrook Grove Buddhist sage who just like opened his doors to collaborators and friends, many of them young kids that he ended up mentoring. And that sounds a little creepy, though. It does. It does. But I don't want it to be. But I'm like, I don't want to do follow up research on him. (laughs) Yeah. Just let him live in a pure part of our memories. Um, this is the first time he mentions Kate Moss, who he mentions a lot in this book. She lived in Mark LeBond's flat on Kensal Road across the street from Edward's family when she first came north from, from Croydon after showing up at Crunch for a go-see still in her school uniform. Isn't that crazy? I'm very confused by this. How did she afford a flat? Was she rich? She was staying at his flat oh. at Mark See, Mark that's why LeBond's. I'm like, that's creepy. Yeah. That's why I'm like, I I know that he's looking at this being like, look at all the people that we were entertaining with. But I'm like, that sounds, why would you have a teenage girl that's still wearing her school clothes come live in your flats? Well, I don't know much about Kate Moss's background. Did she she grow up in poverty? He said, he describes her at some point in the book as having a lowbrow accent, having like a country accent. Interesting. See, we don't know. We're always like posh the moment anybody talks, except for that one, that like fair, little fair... My Fair Lady. Um, that's the only time that I like, I'm like, oh, that's supposed to be a bad accent because he tries to change it. Oh. The rains on the plains. Go. And she had originally that like, hey there, will you buy me some towels? Dude, Cockney accent is the only British accent. Right. Like, I've been trying to get better at it. I, I see you've left the, oh no, every time I try to do a fancy one, I sound like Sherlock Holmes. I, I think that's fine. <laughs> You're like, I see there from, uh. Seeing your left hand and on your finger, I can tell that you weren't ever writing that note. I think you're doing transcontinental. Oh, probably, yeah. That's the only one I know that I practiced. I tried to do it with my students, and they were so unimpressed. I can imagine this so I think, vividly. I, I think they were embarrassed for me, quite honestly. <laughs> and he is. Kate is at Crunch a lot. Kate's always where the best party is. How old is Kate at this point? I want to know. Yeah, I want to know too. He says it's like a West London version of Andy Warhol's factory. Hammocks were strewn around. I've definitely seen places. This is like, I've seen warehouses in Oakland like like this. Yeah. Where it's like, except it, this feels more like we're literal kids, teenagers, except that, yeah, how old is Mark? I need to know how old Mark is. Like, or do I? Like, why am I, why am I so ageist? No, you do. Because also I feel like in this book, he's glossing over a lot. I think he had some upsetting moments in his life i'm sure he did and he's not he doesn't talk about really the hard parts like even when he got kicked out of his house he's like yeah it sucked it's just like you didn't talk about the risk that you encountered because of it i don't know there's like he definitely had a couple experiences he had to just because growing up in london was already hard enough being a gay kid being black immigrant like Someone put his hands on him at some point. Like, there was probably some assault that had happened on some level. Yeah. I mean, I just can't imagine otherwise. Just, But, like, I guess it was just a normal experience, maybe. I don't know. I actually can't say yeah. that for sure that happened, obviously. But it just seems like the probability was high. I mean, he does talk later as he, like, starts to deal with alcoholism. It's like he acknowledges that he was suppressing so much stuff. And I yeah. feel like it might have just been, like, a coping mechanism where, like, 
imagine trying to process all of that at one time. Yeah. It's like he probably had to like, and I mean, he was just surviving, like having to work. And he does talk about how much he used work as like a suppressant, but. Exactly. But I'm just curious because like, I think the reason why I want to know how old Mark is because like he was benefiting from having all these young, cool people because he had the money to have cool stuff. Right. Um, and I'm just kind of like, I am pro cool stuff, but I'm also like curious. Well, what cool stuff? Like his hammocks? Yeah, dude. Hammocks are, hammocks they actually are, are very uncomfortable. That's an old person well, perspective, you know? I mean, I think hammocks are comfortable, but are they expensive? I guess not, but hanging them up, I would be like, whoa, someone went out of their way to hang them up as it a young It could be a kid. very DIY space, though. Yeah. But there was just a lot of art, is what I'm saying, and a, a space in itself cost money, and right. an organization of some level that I feel like only your older self could do. Um, but I'm just kind of curious of, like, the grooming that, that totally happened during the 90s, like, unchecked. Like, a lot of it happened. Um, and still going unchecked to this day, but I think people are a lot more, like survivors are like actually coming out about it there's not as much shame um so people can and people have social media so they have access to talking about their stories too Mm -hmm. but i'm just kind of like curious how because the reason we're speculative of this is because there was so much opportunity during this time period to take advantage of teens that were basically being displaced or like being like that didn't have any adults to relate and that's how they that's how praise take advantage like that's how they like, they look for people that are vulnerable yeah. in situations. And I'm like, a lot of these kids that are fashion, on the edge of fashion, are usually very, like, in, like, land broke grove wasn't the most, like, privileged of privileged areas. So I'm sure that there were just a lot of vulnerable young people involved in fashion and art because they had access to it. But, like that also allowed a lot of predators to come in and like yeah. take advantage of it. And that's why I'm just like, there were experiences that he probably hasn't reflected on that he doesn't talk about here, but this sounds sketchy to me is all I'm saying. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. But also it sounds pretty fun. I mean, it does sound fun. That's the thing. Mark had become, like we said, the epicenter of a loose arts collective that he and Judy Blame belonged to called the House of Beauty and Culture. Like, okay, you think a lot of yourself along with Christopher Nemeth and the proto-steampunk shoe designer John Moore. They produced a sort of tribal DIY reclaimed aesthetic with reworked surplus clothes, found objects, and bones and beads. I love it. House of Beauty and Culture is something I actually looked up. And he does talk about how it was like original vintage upcyclers and they were like visionaries before their time because like now it's like, if you're going to be a fashion line, you better be upcycling. Yeah. Are you going to do a TikTok about this? I should, shouldn't I? Because, Sounds so interesting. Well, they don't exist anymore, but they there is a lot of ode to them. They are very cool. It does. I don't like their name. Everything's House of. I feel like everybody's like House of, House of. Yeah, definitely a cringe name. Um, and beauty and culture, it's just very uninventive. It's like also who put you in charge of beauty and culture? I know, exactly. I kind of want to take culture out of our like pod description, but it's like also just a, it's like a signal to people that you talk about the stuff going on, but I hate the word culture. I do too, because it's like, yeah, it's like, what culture? What kind of culture? What cul- it's culture. so subjective. It's like, what is and what isn't culture? Yeah. And usually it's like us, like we don't have culture, so we're searching for culture and people are talking about other people's culture and it's like, but it's not a problem. Anyways, I don't know. Another member of the collective was Dave Baby, who specialized in phallic and vulvic totem poles. Hell yeah, I love that with the kind of tiki look. I don't know. It feels like Dave Baby probably is appropriating and it's like cringe in its own way, but I'm glad there's vulvas involved, I suppose. I love a phallic pole. 
<laughs> Aren't all poles phallic? I guess so. I guess you're right. Girl loves her poles. He said, to someone like me who had grown up in a functional but mostly undesigned domestic space, it was complete chaos, like being on another planet. I couldn't believe people lived that freely. And that's why it's important <laughs> to like be invited to those spaces because I think people don't know the possibilities until they see them. Yeah. Yeah. And he, because he talks about, he's like relearning the rules, like what, what is even okay? What is even possible? There's so many details of this that I just don't want to leave out. On weekends, Mark would throw a big Jamaican barbecue and invite the whole neighborhood. I love that. The crowd included Rastafarians, punks, and any member of Ladbrook Grove characters. Kate was always there with her boyfriend, Mario Sorrenti. An Italian kid raised in New York who had come to London to model and started taking pictures. I feel like, he doesn't he talk shit about this Italian dude? Oh. Am I making that up? It sounds familiar. Or maybe not, but, like, I remember somebody referencing, like, I think she was probably attracted to him because he was, like, in it. Maybe someone else was talking about this, but, like, how he's just, like, an Italian guy from New York, and that feels so special. But then you realize when you go to New York, there's all of <laughs> There's so many Italian guys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I don't know. That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, I do. I do think you're. It is. It is enchanting when you you're when you meet your first Italian because they're mostly. I think a lot of Italian dudes are pretty attractive when they're young, at least. A New York Italian person, there's just a certain kind of like I don't know flavor to it. They're passionate. You, you're not around that kind of man a lot unless you live around it a lot. You know what I mean? So I think when it when it comes into your circle and you're not from New York or New Jersey, it could seem it could seem exciting. It's it seems exciting. Yeah. Right. He talks about, like, finding ways to cover for his shyness, and it's just, like, interesting that he's both coming into being queer and having a role in the fashion world, both of which I feel like can involve partying. So it's, like, he's having to exist in this party culture as a shy person, and so he's finding ways to be less shy. And part of it is that he's gaining confidence, and part of it's that he's drinking. Yeah, what I call it, the social lubricant. Which is disgusting, but it is true. It does help you, like, say the things that you want to say – I'm, and I don't care what anybody else – like, some people are like, that's not true. And I'm like, it does build your confidence in a way that doesn't make sense. I think yeah. it's just more of, like, your frontal lobe shuts down a little bit. And, okay, something about Kate. He loves Kate. He likes talking about how cool Kate was and how good of a dresser she was. And She's, she, like, a good singer. And, like, yeah, all these things about her. I'm like, why do we love Kate so much? Like, I uh, will say, like, it's cool to hear how fun her personality is given that she's never smiling in like her photos well her tabloid photos she is she's having a great time like uh, you know she's obviously enjoying her time um as being a model and famous but like to be an it kid at that age is there's something like i thought i was an it kid and i wasn't you know like obviously i wasn't on tumblr i wasn't anything but like it was like i was like 19 in like this music scene that i felt like couldn't be beat by others and I was like hooking up with all these guys it it felt a time to be alive so I can only imagine getting all this attention partying and how much fun it was for her also he talks about like the clothes that she picked and there was always a lot of outfit changes with Kate she had an innate way with clothes back then it was hipster jeans and vests and knits by Bella Freud which okay we need to check that out then it became John Galliano, which makes sense, slip dresses, and vintage. Always vintage. I'm glad that she was a vintage girl. I didn't know that about her. Um, and apparently she was good at picking out, like, secondhand stuff at Portobello Market. And does anybody know who Port- what a Portobello Market is? Because I don't. Um, Londoners, tell us more about, like, what the Portobello Market is like now. Yeah. 
So he talks about what he wants to do with ID. He wanted to pare down the ID of the 90s. I'm on 112. Um, make it more elemental and Ill- intimate, more personal and less abstract, more realistic and immediate. He was horrified by the commercial fashion imagery of the 1980s, all of its tacky contoured makeup and jumping ladies with plastic smiles. He was in search of authenticity. He would. He also talks about how this idea of authenticity was grunge. Like it, that's what how we identify as grunge, and it was an encounter. And this is important to understand why trends happen. It was a it was a reaction to the eighties, which was so quote unquote phony, mm-hmm. um, and obviously trying to sell an image of glossy uh, wealth, mm-hmm. white people usually smiling, having the best time ever. Yeah, it's interesting how like you you are in these editorial roles. Or, like, they talk about some of the editor-in-chiefs of Vogue and how, like, Grace Mirabella wasn't right for the 80s or, like... Yeah. It's just, like, it's, like, if you just happen to be fashion director at a time when, like, the, the mode of the minute doesn't speak to you. Yeah. It would be hard. Um, he says, the world wasn't optimistic in the early 1990s and we saw no reason to try to push that. We were coming out of a period of right-wing political austerity, a time when we were ravaged by disease and the airwaves were dominated by a saccharine and pathetic TV culture. We wanted to shoot in playgrounds and school fields, cold British beaches, and strip down rock and roll clubs in the harsh light of day. Our world, the real world, deserved to be seen. It had its own beauty, and its time had come. I don't know. How real is it when you're doing a photo shoot? Like, I know you're trying to show authenticity, but it's still a photo shoot. I don't know. I feel like there's just a lot of, like, look at us. Well, there can be an authentic message of a photo shoot because it's like, a photo shoot, it's not that it's capturing real life. It's that it's capturing a story that you're right. creating, you know, so your right. story could be authentic. Yeah, I just think there's a lot of, like, we were trying to be authentic. And there, there was a lot of – but all that tells me was, like, a lot of gatekeeping and being, like, you don't get it. I don't know. Like, that's what it signals to me. Yeah, fair enough. Um, he also talks about how grunge ended up being incredibly white. Yep. I mean, Nirvana. That's, like, yeah, Pacific Northwest. Right. Yeah. So, okay, Michael's dad comes back to London, mm-hmm. and so they get the idea to move in with Judy Blame. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had enough money to pay a little bit of rent. Judy lived in a large Victorian. So this is where he ends up living. Yeah. That's right. And this place sounded like a, like, fun situation. Yeah, similar to Crunch. Yeah, with loads of Dave Baby and freaking Frack, um, which, again, are designers, I guess, and artists that I have no idea about, but I would like to learn more. It just seems like such a happening spot because, like, you'll read later on as he starts to grow, like, he already knew Kate Moss. Like, so, like, he already knew all these photographers. I mean, Kate Moss wasn't anything then, though. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. When, like, 10 years, 20 years later, when he was, like, they were all kind of coming into his own, he already knew all the people around him. Right, right. Those people ended up being successful. They might not have, but they did. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, like, uh, he was living in, like, a world where all these people were going to end up being important, like, important people, I guess, to the fashion industry in some capacity. Yeah, Judy was gregarious and quippy and smart as hell with a proper education for all these punk credentials, including a deep knowledge and appreciation of art history. And I read that because he sounds just like Malcolm McLaren, because Malcolm McLaren was all about punk, and like, but he was also very educated and had a lot of knowledge in art history, something he hung over, I think, Vivian Westwood. But I just I think what makes most of these characters interesting is their knowledge of art history. And I was just kind of thinking on my personal level, if I was like dating, if I would be attracted to this kind of person or not. And I would because like 
a single man that knows anything about art history uh, hell yeah if he's not just into dude artists if he's just into dude artists i'm like i don't care oh that is totally fair but i guess i'd rather have them know about fucking art history than not and a lot of times they don't like just a lot of people just don't care about art or know him. I barely know stuff about art history. So, and so like so much about art is like I was thinking about this last night as I was stoned at this like club slash it kind of is an art gallery also but it's like all art is is like rich people grooming artists to become famous so that they can launder their money oh, through yeah. a famous it's like art is just about the when it's like so much about the names oh, it's yeah. like not that we have to get in a conversation about the art industry right now but um, but that's not all art. That's a lot of recent art, but like there's certain artists that are literally that's what their job is. Well, yeah, but it's like rich people want artists to become famous so that their art becomes valuable. Right, and right. the only reason art is or isn't valuable is whether or not people know your name. Yeah. And so it's like, anyway. I like this guy, Judy character, and he does talk a quite, like he has like a few paragraphs about him. So we're going to talk a little bit more. And Judy always had a drink in hand. So he's like, oh drunk there was a fair amount of drug taking from morning till night and i wonder sometimes if he did it to calm his overactive mind as social as he was like us judy's creative synapses never stopped firing he's basically never stopped working he was always sketching or cutting or safety pinning something onto something else that's because he had the ability i don't know what his income actually was but when you have the ability to just randomly be creative you can be creative versus like he obviously didn't have a full-time job he wouldn't be capable of doing this without a full-time job or i don't know if he could keep a full-time job mm-hmm. so something important in reference of like celebrating his creativity did you read the part, though, where he calls Michael and Edward the Africans? Yeah, not surprising. He called him that, and but he would, like, sometimes use it in a way where it was defensive or, like, as in, oh, don't, don't bother clearing the table. The Africans will get it, which is so scary that he thought that was funny. I don't know. It's just, like, God, why people? One night uh, with me and Luther and Michael, the door person warned Judy not to go in with us or he might get mugged. Yeah. Well, Judy. and he said, these are my Africans, he said, and we allowed it. Right. It's like you had Ugh. to have, you had to be allied to white people at the time to survive or like to right. get into these spaces and like they tolerated this behavior. Yeah. He does drugs. He calls his mom while he's on drugs. He yeah. says, when I look at the light bulbs, I see the Bee Gees turning into skeletons. She says, have you tried any vodka? She finally asked, because that might be the reason why. And he said, yes, I did. And she's like, okay, be careful. She didn't, he was actually on LSD and it wasn't vodka though. Right, right. So he talks about Pat McGrath. She was the mother of the group. She has like this mothering spirit. And he has like a sickle cell crisis flare up and Pat takes him to the hospital so he can get morphine. He just has a real tenderness toward Pat. And what is Pat? Do we know? Like, aren't aren't they a makeup designer or makeup? makeup artist. Pat is like a safe haven for him and will be throughout his life. And I think it's really sweet how he talks about her. And who's Craig? Because Craig comes up later. And I was like, I forgot who Craig was. <sighs> Craig, Craig. Craig is like a, can someone just fucking tell me what Craig is? Yeah. <laughs> Craig McDean, who was just starting to shoot on his own after a few years of assisting Nick Knight. Craig's technical rigor appealed to me. Even as our aesthetic movement was coming into focus as gritty and socially realist, I was always drawn to polish, graphic, clean images. Yeah. So he's a photographer. I don't know who Eugene is either, but Eugene's part of this crew. (laughs) And Pat, Eugene, and Craig. Craig are all like a group. They all have their own talents, you know, and they can really just make a shoot happen, I guess. Like if they really just had them to hang out with and make a shoot, they could make it happen. And they're just people that, you know, he stays connected with throughout his life. Um, And he calls Craig withdrawn and intense. 
and Pat, joyful mom. He also talks about Naomi Campbell. He's starting to have a friendship with her and her and Kate Moss are really good friends and they're, you know, being models. And so he's doing more work, getting to know these people. So basically the stylists who came to pitch him stories at ID were starting to make real serious money working outside of magazine editorials. Basically freelancing seems like it's like the way that people make a lot of money. Whereas like he was under a bare light bulb at the office writing shopping pages and asking Judy for spare change when I couldn't pay for it on my own. Simon put him up for some jobs and the record companies would hire me to work with visiting R&B bands or new look gospel ones like the sounds of blackness. But it was becoming clear to me that fashion's main players were having a far easier time imagining white women stylists as a fit for the top consulting jobs. I wasn't trusted in the same ways they were or included in the same conversations or seen as the big creative contributor in the ways that my editorial work should have made obvious. Terry was giving me a long leash in the work we were turning out as a team looked ever more sophisticated and fashion forward, yet when it came time to hire a consulting stylist for the big commercial jobs, crickets. And just so you all know, editorials don't pay shit. Commercials where they pay the big money. So that's crucial to remember why he's like pointing that out. Mm-hmm. Like models, stylists, a lot of time, a lot of people, no one gets paid on shoots that are editorial focused. And that's something that he does not talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the problem because he's he's elevating all these black models and black stylists and all these people, but is he paying them? Probably not. You don't think so? No. It's a pretty, like, it's like 98%. It's like very few, I don't know who it is, but very few people actually choose to pay for editorial shoots. Mm. It's just not where the money is. But there's a lot more. He does talk about how it's like less money and he means no money. <laughs> it might be different for an editor because you are getting paid by this magazine to have a stipend or whatever. But commercials, just like that's why he does freelance a lot of the time because he does commercial with like brands, and that's where all the money actually is. Yeah. So he talks about in addition to the start of my friendship with Naomi, 1993 was the year of that Kate's iconic obsession ads shot by Mario Sorrenti. Is that her boyfriend? Basically, Kate becomes the biggest model of the world, and then she was a beacon of controversy because people said she was anorexic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which he said is not true. I think she was anorexic, but we can all, I mean, whatever. I hate when this, this controversy. Yeah, we're sorry. Mario Sorrenti was, he is the Italian-American who she was dating. Which, lucky him, okay? Got like a iconic obsession to add shot by him. So that's a win for him. I guess if you're going to benefit from anyway, be the person that you're dating. Yeah, being, saying you're a beacon of controversy is one thing. It's like, she was real thin and promoting this ideal beautiness of real thin. It wasn't just, it's not to blame her for how she looks because she was existing. I mean, I know she was doing coke. Everybody knows that she ended up doing, like she had a problem. Like to deny that she, she might not have been a junkie, but she was definitely partying and participating in um, behaviors that would, like. She wasn't like trying to be like a health role model. That's for damn sure. Yeah, but I'm also like, the beauty standard was shifting because because Kate was the focus of the model. So to like be void of any kind of conversation and say that she did nothing wrong is inaccurate. I'm not saying she personally did anything wrong because it was like people were hiring her, mm-hmm. but she participated in benefited from this world that was upholding this beauty culture. So anyways, anyway, anyway. he says America's where the money was. It represented more limitless opportunity compared to the UK, where a working class accent or not having gone to the right school could be enough to stymie your progress. He's talking about like Craig and Pat. New York is calling to them. Craig went off to work for W, moving to New York. 
it was a large format, the W magazine, to give an outlet to edgier photographs. Literally, like, it's literally a larger magazine, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it's just, like, big, like, dimension-wise. Um, it's also just, like, a more established one. Yeah. And Craig takes a white stylist with him from Harper's and Queen on those jobs instead of Edward. And so they don't speak for months. I mean, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have social media. Right. What were we going to do? Like People call called each other. Yeah, but it's really easy to lose touch for a little bit, I'm just saying. It seems like it, he, he is, though, I think, expressing that he was upset, too. Like, he felt hurt by that. Like, it seems like... Yeah, I wonder if they ever talked it out. Yeah. I don't think they probably just became buds again. Right, right. Edward becomes, like, famous, and he's like, whatever. Yeah, dude, no big deal. And then finally, he got his chance. It didn't come through Craig, though he booked to shoot it. It came through Ronnie Crook Newhouse, who had gone from being a founder of the downtown New York Bible Details magazine to an art director at Calvin Klein. Calvin and Ronnie loved what we were doing at ID, my agent told me. Could I come in for a meeting? Yes, I could. Okay, who the fuck was his agent? Was it his sister at this point? No, not yet. Okay, I'm just like thinking about the writer. He's always like wondering how he could get it into editing. He was just struggling ever getting to editing, he told me. But anyways, he was like always just being the copywriter and he really wanted to get an editorial work. And it's just like so nep- full of nepotism. It's like almost impossible unless you're like, you know, somebody like you grew up with them or like whatever, or you're a part of the family. But to me, it sounds like you just need an agent. <laughs> you have to just hire an agent, which you, if you don't have money, if you're a copywriter, you can't do it. But yeah. it's just weird that he's like an ID fashion director and he has an agent. But I guess... That's what you have to have. It's, I don't. It is strange. It's like I, I didn't even realize that like editors had agents. I mean, I didn't either. That's why I'm saying yeah. an agent for what? And like I also like this race agent came out of nowhere. I need to know more about this agent. So, okay, question. Do you think that this book should have been longer? Do you think it would have been better if it was longer? Knowing that we do like the book. We thought the book was good, but. Um, I think he's skimming over some details. I do think he's very detailed about some things and not detailed about others as you've got to pick and choose things. Right, right. But I'm like, I think an interesting story would have been like his process of getting the agent of like being like, I I, I had to have some outside help. Like, Yeah, I think he did. He like kept a really strong narrative focus. Like he, you know, wanted to talk about race and his struggles and yeah. like some about the industry. And I think he did a really good job of keeping focused and like probably that was why he left out a lot of details. But yeah, it could have, I think it could have been longer. I mean, I just think there needs to be a little bit more revealing of how to make it in this industry. Because, I mean, he was extraordinarily lucky and a lot of it was luck. But I think he needs to talk about, like, and be more transparent about what works for him and what didn't. Mm -hmm. Rather than just framing it as, like, hard work. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, he does talk about all his connections. And it's clearly a lot of his connections came through for him. Right, right. So he gets to New York to work for Calvin Klein. Calvin Klein's big at this time. Yeah, because what do you think of it now? It's like corny to me. They've done a good job, I feel like, with the, you know, like the bras with the bands that say Calvin Klein on those have been really popular the last few years. It's like they've somehow, it's, I think, yeah, it's really interesting. What does this brand stand for? It's like almost like Americana. But you're, maybe you're thinking of Tommy Hilfiger. Because I get those two confused. I will say I don't know too much about Calvin Klein. I just think the C and K is serif. And I think that's just, I hate anything that's serif. Like they have like little ends at the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's like so old school and keeping them out of touch. Um, and like change your icon. Mm-hmm. It, I, 
think it looks hideous. Yeah, they're just so, I haven't seen, oh, I think they recently did a Western theme. They are, yeah, they are kind of Americana. Like, they have a Western kind of ranch. That's, at least their most recent edition is, yeah. I think they were in the beginning, or maybe I'm thinking of Ralph Lauren. That's what I'm thinking. That's another one. God damn it. Ralph Lauren, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger. Tell me the difference. Like, Mary Fuck Kill. (laughs) (laughs) Are they all American? Yeah. All three of them? Yeah. Those are the three designers that we have, and we can't even name one. Like, okay, yeah, it's sad. Anyways. But okay, so so Calvin Klein had launched CK, Sarah Font, for younger consumers, <laughs> and the fashion trade calls this kind of side brand a bridge line, because you're basically trying to groom your customers. You're trying to, like, get them while they're young with this younger line, probably a little less expensive, and then you hope that they eventually grow up and buy your more expensive stuff. But Calvin Klein puts a ton of resources into this brand. A lot of times these kind of bridge lines are bad and they don't get like the due diligence or whatever. But he's saying that like Calvin Klein really put a lot into it. And this is what he gets called in to do. The job I was called in for was to style a series of CK advertising campaigns for which Kate was again the face. I'd be shooting with Craig, with Pat doing the makeup, and Eugene the hair. A creative safe space, even if I was still quietly furious at Craig. Man, I hope Craig's not like, man, are you still mad at me? Bro, you you mad still? Yeah. He said he remembers what he wore on the first day he met everybody for Calvin Klein. And I honestly, he puts this point that I think is interesting and tells a lot about like why designers dress so particularly. And they're like, there's a joke on TikTok that's like, this is designer, this is, these are the designs. It's like wacky designs and the designer is wearing like the most black and white clothing. Mm -hmm. But he says, I wore on the first day uh, my signature fashion director in jeans, a V-neck sweater, which... R.I.P. V-necks. Yeah. They'll be back, but I right now they give me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. When I see a V-neck, I'm like, get out of here. Get that out of my sight. Yeah. With a white t-shirt underneath and a camel hair coat from English Square. What is a camel hair? Is it just like a color? No, I feel like it's like camel hair. Like it's kind of, have you seen, like felt like a horse hair thing? It's like, mm-hmm. it's not fur, it's hair. Okay, interesting. He had a camel hair coat. Oh, okay. Low-key, but a a bit polished. And he says here, when you're an outside talent book to consult, you're not expected to dress like everyone else. But you want to be more or less on the same planet. I disagree completely. I don't think that's fair because, like, they hire you for your eye. I just don't want anybody to feel like they have to, reading this, like, feel like they have to, like, fit in. Right. It's like their job is to be able to like create aesthetics and they can create aesthetics based on their own inspiration or they can create aesthetics to fulfill what a job is asking them to do. Like you don't have to buy into the whole brand's aesthetic personally in order to be able to achieve it through your work. Yeah, exactly. But he was finally making a proper rate because he was doing commercial work of thousands a day. That's so much money. He's making money. God. I know. Like so many of my peers I've been have been doing for – years i'm like thousands a day i don't i don't know one peer oh which i'm glad i don't want to know too many rich people that i'll be corrupted but i mean that's yeah, I, that's a lot for now yeah I'm, I'm just imagining you at a fancy party like doing cocaine in a fancy dress i mean i i would 100 percent be there and i want to i i would like once you know one of those every once in a while maybe every five years you know get the opportunity to wear a fancy dress do some cocaine have a have a drink but like yeah, so he's making a lot of fucking money. He talks about how coming into this job, there's an apprehension that comes with being 
a minority. He, like he was a minority at ID, but they were a scrappy little family with no money. And he was a central cog trusted by everyone. But then he shows up at this job and he's like, he just feels like he needs to try a hundred times harder than someone else. And he was in New York where police violence against black men was even more extreme than what he had come to know in London. Rudy Giuliani had been elected mayor in 1994 Boo. on a tough on crime platform. So, like, basically that gave the right for a lot of white people to be aggressive and completely racist, like, physically harm black people. Right, right. And he says CK was making waves with advertising that was ethnically diverse and gender fluid. But before that initiative, Calvin's iconography was as white as his staff, which mostly consisted of tall, bony, beautiful wasp girls with thick eyebrows and low ponytails. Love the description. I do, too. And he talks about, like, the white person mindset. And how you have to, like, master this mindset to, like, work as a black person in a white space. He says that in addition to knowing our own minds and hearts, we have to absorb the dominant culture and how it thinks and reacts. To go into uh, any white space without that comprehension is like walking into a sword fight without a rapier and a shield. What's a rapier? I guess it's a knife. I don't know anything about swords. You just don't do it. You have to master the mindset. So he comes in. He meets Calvin Klein. There's, like racks and racks and racks of clothing his job was to create 30 looks out of what was there and then calvin and the ceo and a few other people would whittle it down to 15 looks that they'd come in to shoot he worked with someone named gabriella who was the much feared ceo of armani she was rumored to make grown men cry on a daily basis he said thankfully i never got any smoke she was always great to me he says that about a lot of people it's like he acknowledges that they're kind of assholes but says that he likes them i kind of like that I don't know if he's actually telling the truth, so we don't know what actually happened. Yeah, it could be saying, you know, they were nice to me. I personally love them, but other people say, yeah. wink, wink, wink. They're kind of shitty. Calvin tells him about his view of minimalist luxury and why Kate was such a perfect symbol of it. With CK, he wanted to signify freedom, openness, fun. The woman he saw as emblematic of his brand was a love child, but one who was globally well-traveled and elegant. Like, what does that mean? Her parents, like, fucked in a bush one day, and then <laughs> she was born, but then, like, went to Europe? Like, what does this mean? I don't know. And he talks about the military style that they were using at that time, when khaki pants, and how CK had just launched his CK pants, khaki pants, which mm. I loved as much as he did, and I'm like, ew. Yeah, Edward has a minimalist style. Uh, yeah, sometimes I'm like, I need to look at your spreads, actually, because I, I, I've disagreed with a lot of things so far. There's a podcast right now about Ivy style, and I didn't want to listen to it because it kind of annoyed me that other people have a fashion podcast that's successful. <laughs> 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 it's actually, it's articles of interest. It's Avery, Avery Truffleman. She was from 99% Invisible. Anyway, they're doing... Oh, they, they, so they had them... Uh, the public the means and that's yeah, the thing relations. i'm like you don't even like fashion you're just you're doing this from like a journalistic point of view rather than a love of fashion yeah, yeah. i'm like i bet your style sucks um sorry sorry but anyway there's more to ivy style than i realized and i just feel like people probably thought of khakis differently than how i think of them now like they meant something different to them what did what was the perspective well i'm only on episode two but they're talking about like style on campuses and how like like ivy lee yeah but they're talking about, like, its significance in Japan. They're talking about, like, the signifiers of... Like, they're talking about the philosophers. She doesn't name the philosophers, but she is talking within the framework of these philosophies that we know about, of dress and dressing. Yeah. And, like... She's muddling it down for the common folk. But I'm also really, really interested in the fact that... Does she talk about the 80s being, like, the kind of the push for the Ivy League look? 
It does start around that time. Yeah, because that's the one Preppy comes out. I mean, like, Princess Diane is the biggest person that I know that really, like, pushed that. Mm-hmm preppy look anyways the khaki pants were also part of that you're saying i think they are but i'm not sure makes sense to me i just imagine like sweater knotted over your shoulders when he was talking about how button downs were actually more sporty like i guess especially at princeton i think everyone was in sports like it's a really jockey campus i don't know why it's i guess they're just like all east coast people who play tennis i don't know but like that's like their version of fraternities because they don't have like they have fraternities they're not like the fraternities we know. They're more like these fraternity leagues. Oh, like, oh. like food yeah. areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it was called like dining clubs. Yeah, you dining yeah, clubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like it sounds really – I kind of love it. Well, yeah, but I follow this one person that says goes to Princeton and they're non-binary and they're queer. Well, I'm sure it's like a bad version of it. He's like it's horrible. I'm sure. Or they're like it's fucking horrible. Yeah. To exist in that space. Yeah, I just like the idea of having a social group that revolves around eating. But I just thought it was interesting that, like, they were saying the button-down was actually, like, more athletic wear before it became work wear. And it's like, yeah. Anywho, he talks about the next step was doing the fittings. He did the fittings on Kate. He was so happy to see her. Imagine you're hired to work in an intimidating corporate fortress for the first time in your life and you see your old mate from the afters who is now practically running things. Um, He says that like she's really great to work with, like to for try-ons because she would like look at angles for hours in the mirror. She would hike things up, turn herself around, really testing and wearing the outfit. If she didn't feel it and didn't feel like it was true to the character we were creating, we passed on it and went to another. So they're collaborating. Yeah, but I'm also like was confused because it said we tended not to love the suiting. I'm like, what's the suiting? What do you mean? Like the suit options? I don't know. This is what he wrote. Yeah, like suiting is like, you know, when people say shirting, it's just like shirts. Every time I brought out something tailored, she rolled her eyes. That was his next sentence, though. So I'm like... Yeah, like a tailored suit. And Kate was already working with Calvin's main line. Again, I don't know what that means. Because this is a younger line. This is CK for like a younger audience. And so she's also working with Calvin, like Calvin Klein. Like the main line. Yeah. Okay, so they hated the suits that were tailored is what they're trying to say. Yeah. I was just like, am I not getting it? Okay, that makes more sense. And he was talking about how the fabric was, like, higher quality on the main line. So these felt a bit basic. Yeah. Which I'm like, yeah, because, like, poor people don't get the nice quality. Do you think (laughs) you'd be able to tell the difference? Yeah. Between the fabrics? Oh, yeah. I think I do now. I, like, one of the ways that I, like, started to care about vintage and learning about vintage was feeling it and testing it. Mm -hmm. Anyway. They talk about beige. Beige was every Tuesday at Bowery Bar, an indoor-outdoor restaurant. And the brightest and the most creative part of the New York nightlife carnival never missed beige. It was drag queens and rock stars, downtown personalities, supermodels, and fashion designers. It sounds a lot of fun. Yeah, it was an all-night affair. If you knew where to look, drugs were easy to get. They provided an efficient way out of the shyness that continued to plague me. Okay, this is, he says, being in the company of famous models, champagne flowed steadily. Which I'm like, dude, who drinks champagne at night? They're not a wedding. It's just not a fun time. Like one drink and I have a headache. Oh my God. It's like incapacitating. Yeah. I'm like, no wonder they had to do Coke. (laughs) Right. I'm like, drink some water. You're dehydrated. Yeah. Have a vodka, like have a gin and tonic like a normal person. Yeah. But he also talks about like Kate at her disposal had like a stretch limo and so did Naomi. Mm. I was like, seems so like where, who's keeping it? Who's keeping this? Where is that thing parked? Where is that thing parked? Yeah. Yeah, dude. It's so and hilarious. Do they have cell phones? And is she calling from her cell phone? Or is she like, 
Where is she, how is she contacting this stretch limo? You are, uh, yeah, you have so much to contribute, but I do feel like half of your commentary in this episode is, do they have cell phones? <laughs> I'm like, we're getting to a point where cell phones exist. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? So I am like, I'm just curious how they're contacting people. She probably has this car phone. Okay, so she's calling from another car to get her stretch limo car. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm just con- I just want to. I feel like they're leaving out resources for people like me. That when you look like Kate Moss, literally everyone will let you use their phone. That's that's. I guess that's true. I mean, she probably has an assistant that's doing all the work, so they're probably like, I don't know, using at the restaurant and then like calling the. I don't know. There's. So- I just want to know the be- behind the scenes of how the stretch limer was at her beck and call without having a cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. And then paparazzi trailed them. It was the first time I saw how truly relentless being famous could be. Okay, I got to say something about paparazzi. Most of the time, they called the paparazzi. Nowadays, but back then, though. Back then, too. Yeah, they did. I wouldn't say all the time, but there were places that paparazzi hung out at. And that was known to be hung out at. 2000s was exceptionally Mm -hmm. bad with paparazzi. And the levels that they would get, because they were getting paid at such a high rate back then, especially with the bad girls. I could go on a rant about that. But, like, there there was some bad behavior with the paparazzi and following famous people and such. But there are ways not to be seen and not to be part of the paparazzi. And to just say that that is just, like, they couldn't help it because they're so famous. You can be famous and not be in the media eye all the time. Right. I mean, you're also going to these places where it's, like, you don't have to go to the most famous place where all the famous people go. Yeah. Like, it's like literally you're going to the watering hole where the lions wait to... Exactly. Yeah. And then he talks about Vogue Italia and how to fashion and photography lovers like me, Vogue Italia was the holy grail. And Craig, alongside his advertising jobs and lookbooks for designers like Jill Sander, was now contributing to Vogue Italia. It wasn't as in like massive circulation like American Vogue, but Franca, Sazani, Sazani... The editor-in-chief believed ardently in photographers and stylists as artists and oracles and had eccentric enough taste to allow magic to occur on her pages. Pretty much the complete opposite of Anna Wintour. Yeah. Who, I just want to say, Franca Sazani, Franca Sazani, Franca Sazani, is the Italian Vogue editor-in-chief who eventually dies, but whatever. Her son married B. Wintour, or B. Schaefer, is what she was originally known with, which is Anna Wintour's daughter. And I just kind of wanted to give you a little fun fact, a fun tidbit about how basically the royalties together. I love her long wavy hair. Oh my gosh, she's so much cuter than Anna Wintour. I saw a woman with Anna Wintour's haircut, and I thought the bitchiest thoughts when I saw her, because she like looked put together and like looked like she had a good job because um, her clothes weren't wrinkled or anything, you know? And, like, she had a blunt uh, – like, she looked just like Anna Wintour, mm. but young. And I wanted to be like, who's this Anna Wintour bitch? Because it looked like she was – anyways. I just get really mad about Anna Wintour's look, and I'm like, no one should ever try to look like Anna Wintour. And, and if you are, you're, like, probably a girl boss that I, don't, I detest. Yeah. he His desire to work for Vogue Italia was reaching the level of desperation. Finally, Craig put him forward for a story. He pitched him called Walking. Being in New York had inspired me immensely, he says. It's creativity and energy and diversity percolated in me. 
So much of its life is lived out on the street, which I've always loved to chronicle. I was struck by how professional New York women would change around town in trainers with, with a pair of heels in their bags. So he wanted to do a fashion take. Franca approved the idea and made sure we were including the right mix of designers. And off we went to do coats and long skirts and flat sandals on some like various models running chicly to and fro in the meatpacking district and around Wall Street with a huge fan blowing at them like a tornado. He was worried she wouldn't like it, but she liked it. And so Yay, he Franca. hires him to do more work. Yeah. Yeah. But he saw Franca. He hadn't actually met Franca at that point. And he saw Franca at an event. And he went out to go say hi to her. And she gave him a dirty look. As she would if you were like, who the fuck are you? And he went to his model friend and was like, oh, my God. I really want to be injured. Like, I don't think Franca knows who I am. And then his model friend was like, I got you. And then, like, she did an introduction and was like, hey, this is my friend Edward Innifel. And then Franca's response was, oh, my God, Edward Innifel? I don't know if she sounded like – she probably was like, oh, my God. I, I can't do it. What's an Italian accent? What's a – Oh, God. Innifel. No, I can't. I literally can't even. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I love your work. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but it did seem like kind of racist. Like some black guy walked up to her and she's like, why the fuck are you talking to me? And then yeah. she just assumes he's not important and then whatever. Well, maybe. I think it was just like the fact that she didn't know him. Yeah, yeah. Fair, fair. I mean, it could be racist intention, like unintentionally, but I'm also just like, she's too famous not to be suspicious of random people coming up fair, to her. Fair, yeah. And yeah, so then she gave, I guess, her direct phone line. Again, not a cell phone. And then like they started to, she, he was like, throwing and pitching ideas to her on a regular basis and he didn't have to have someone in the middle doing it for him and then he started to like work with Talia Vogue pretty much from then on and that's where I stopped okay so he's working at Vogue Italia he worked with Calvin Klein he's on the up and up and next episode in two weeks we will be finishing the rest of it we will be finishing the rest of it I don't know I don't know (laughs) okay well I love you I I thank you guys for listening um please rate us five stars please yeah we need some five stars keep this momentum going yeah yeah we appreciate it so all right bye